I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. C-13 Originals. This is a documentary series about Tracy Lords, who entered the porn industry at age 15 and left at age 18. There are some who view this as the story of a young girl who was taken advantage of by a brutal industry. There are others who view this as the story of a smart and resourceful young woman who, armed with a legitimate ID, nearly took down said industry, as well as the people in it. There are still others who view this as the story of the unlikeliest of feminist icons. All views will be discussed. These are real-life events. These are real people being interviewed. This podcast contains adult themes and graphic language. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Once Upon a Time in the Valley, Tracy becomes not just a nude model, but the nude model when she appears as the centerfold in the September 1984 issue of Penthouse. You know, everybody knew Tracy was in in Penthouse. It was great for her career. She was ecstatic. Tracy meets adult actor Tom Byron. He had a big dick, and he could fuck, and girls liked him, and he didn't have to say anything. And as soon as he would talk, people would go, just, you don't need to talk, Tommy. And he didn't. Tracy and Tom start dating. And it's with Tom that Tracy does her first hardcore photo shoot, even if it's supposed to be soft. They started fucking on the set, and the shooter had to stop shooting, because he wasn't shooting hardcore. I'm Lily Analek, and this is Once Upon a Time in the Valley, featuring Ashley West. When we left Tracy last episode, she was standing on the border of the porn world. She hadn't yet crossed that border, but she's about to. One thing I've learned from doing this podcast, Ashley, if you want to be able to operate in the porn world, you've got to be able to communicate in porn code. Absolutely. The porn world is in many ways a closed-off one, and this private language is a way of keeping outsiders out. Okay, so Tom Byron moves to L.A. from Houston in 1980. He wants to get into porn, but it's stymied. Spends several years kicking around in non-porn jobs. Finally, he makes it inside the World Modeling Agency, the gateway to all things porn, and in front of World Modeling Agency's owner, Jim South, the gatekeeper to all things porn. It's here that Tom learns to talk the talk. When I walked in and I talked to him a little bit, and I, as soon as he gave me like, like his little can spiel or whatever, I, you know, I, I mentioned that, you know, about movies. I want to be in movies. I've seen these girls, and and that's what I wanted to do. And he really got kind of, he got, got kind of, 
not paranoid, but just kind of like, well, we don't really talk about that. I mentioned I was from Texas. He was from Texas. And I kind of broke down his little guard there after a while. And then he said, well, yeah, we, we do do that, but we don't really talk about it in here. We refer to that as commercial. That's commercial work. Commercial work was code for like hardcore porn. It's actually Jim South who devised much of this code. Here's Jim. I'm the one that started originally using the terminology of BGGGADP. GPGGADP. Ashley, can you decode for us? Sure. BG is a boy girl, meaning a sex scene between a male performer and a female performer. GG is girl girl, meaning a sex scene between two female performers. DP is double penetration, meaning a sex scene that involves the simultaneous penetration of one or more orifices of one performer by two other performers. And A, of course, is for anal. Jim again. The reason I came up with this is directors would come in and you want to come in and say in front of a brand new girl, I need a girl to do anal tomorrow night, Jim. Can you do it? Oh, we wanted to protect the virgin ears of new talent. That's sweet. Also necessary. It was against the law to make adult movies in L.A. all the way up until 1988 and the landmark California versus Freeman case. Now, there were times when it was more against the law than others. The LAPD cracked down or loosened up, depending on who was in office. In 1984, the year Tracy entered the industry, Ronald Reagan had just begun his second term. He'd gotten elected in large part due to the support of the Christian right, which was in a state of alarm because VHS had made pornographic material so widespread and accessible. Reagan asked his attorney general, Edwin Meese, to create a committee, known as the Meese Commission, to study the effects of sexually explicit material. His John H. Weston, a First Amendment attorney and former counsel for the Adult Film Association of America, on what exactly that commission was up to. Technological changes sounded the death knell of any possible attempt on the part of the uh, either censors or folks who, for other reasons, were not comfortable with sexually oriented material. And so the Mises Commission was put together, A, to benefit the politics of the people who put it together, uh, and B, also because if they, meaning the censors and the religious folks who really sponsored this, uh, if they didn't win, if they didn't prevail, if they didn't get the result they wanted and have government step in aggressively at that time, it was all over but the shouting. So Tracy's coming into the industry at a time when the stakes are quite high, both for it and for the government. But Ashley, I still don't understand how porn's illegal. Like, on what grounds? Former LAPD Vice Squad Detective Bob Navarro explains. In our opinion, the producers and the directors were all involved in hiring uh, models and and, uh, people to commit sex acts, to film them, and to make money. So uh, we applied the uh, the, uh, pandering and uh, pimping laws to, uh, to that. Jim South, who's a pimp by that reckoning, sees the law a little differently. Back then, you could watch a movie, you could rent a movie, you could buy a movie, but you couldn't make a movie. And even the cops that I got to know real well, I even laughed about this. If you're talent, it's a misdemeanor, it's prostitution. If you're an agent or a director, it's a felony. It's pimping and pandering. 
the minimum sentencing guideline was three years per count. Meaning if you had four girls in a movie, you would get a minimum of three years per count times four girls, which is 12 years. Uh, I know of murderers that have not spent that much time in jail. So basically, to be a porn person back then is to be, by definition, a criminal. Right. And to practice your trade, you have to go outside the bounds of the law, which is a tricky place from which to operate. As adult performers Tom Byron and Sharon Mitchell know all too well. The vice department, the DA, and everyone did not like the fact that people were shooting porn in Los Angeles. It was was not accepted or, you know, we, we were constantly under under the gun we had to you know basically operate almost like i mean almost like drug dealers we would pick a meeting place like a market or something like a safeway market you know we park our cars we get in vans and you know or a bus and then we would drive from there and we'd take little side streets so we weren't tailed by the lapd there was a a guy who was sort of a silent backer we used to shoot up at his mansion a lot, up in uh, up in Malibu, and um, literally, I think they they would scan footage. I'm sure they did. And there was one cop in particular that recognized these palm trees and the view and the scene and nailed it down to that location, to the producers, to the backers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's into such a heady and hypercharged atmosphere. Forbidden, but excitingly forbidden. Criminal, but luridly criminal. That Tracy is entering in the fall of 1984. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. So it's October of 1984, mere weeks after Tracy's issue of Penthouse hit stands. Here's Tom Byron explaining why adult magazines can only get you so far. You know, do Hustler, do Penthouse, do, you know, all the major magazines. And then after a while, I mean, you kind of got shot up. 
because you know you'd work for all the different photographers once or twice. You know, you started showing up in magazines and stuff, and then you know, it was like, well, the real money is in doing the movies. It's kind of like the next logical step because I, I mean, that's where the money is. So the question becomes, how does that next logical step get made? Here's how Ginger Wynn, who began appearing in movies about six months before Tracy, made that step. Jim kept asking me, you know, do you want to do commercial? And at first I, 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 I wasn't offended, but I, I said to him, I'm, I'm not that kind of girl. I had the same stereotype image of a porn star as many people did in that day and time. I thought that would be prostitution. I thought, you know, a lot of the negative things and those things were not me. So for three months, I turned it down. And one day I walked into Jim's office and there was this beautiful girl in a white dress smoking a cigarette in one of those long cigarette holders. And she was reading a script and she's going through it and she's reading dialogue and she's talking to Jim and she's smoking her cigarette and she's beautiful and she's intelligent and she's articulate and nothing that I thought was a porn star. If I could, I would tell you her name, but I can't. I just don't remember. So um, I took her to lunch and she said, well, I, um, I have script approval. I have cast approval. I get $1,000 per scene and uh, I say no to anything I don't want to do. And I'm like, oh. All right, that sounds really cool. So I went back into Jim and I said, okay, I'm going to do it, but here's my rules. And Jim's on the floor laughing. He's like, no one is ever going to pay you. This is a this is a movie star. This is a porn star. She's famous. And I said, okay, well, then I'm not going to do it. So a couple of weeks later, I was hanging out in Jim's office. And do you remember the gong show? Do you remember the, the big, tall blonde that did the gong? Her name was Svetlana Marsh. And Svetlana and David were doing their first porno film. They were shooting in, on the island of Kauai. They wanted people who had never been in films before, and they agreed to all my terms. And here's how Christy Canyon, who began appearing in movies about six months after Tracy, made that step. But before Christy gets started, Ashley, can you explain to us what a loop is? Because we're going to need to know. Sure. Loops are single real porn movies, typically shot on 8mm, and lasting only 10 minutes or so. They've been around since the adult industry started, and they're called loops because they used to be projected in peep show booths in one continuous loop. Remarkably, they were still being made in the 1980s. Now Christy. Jim's like, okay, well, you know, now you're going to do a loop at the uh, house in the hills. Turns out years later, who owned that? Billy Idol. He owned it years after. But anyway, so I show up thinking a loop must have been like another magazine shoot. And then um, I see like camera crews and the guys carrying the cables and the trucks. And I'm like thinking, oh, fuck, 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 fuck. You know, what did I get into? And of course, no one had a cell phone back then. So I used like the home phone there to call Jim South, which I still know his number by heart, 818, blah, 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 blah. And um, I'm like, Jim, why are there camera crews and this and that? And he's like, oh, it's a loop. I I told you. That's why you're getting $500 instead of 400 or whatever. And I go, oh, I didn't realize a loop was sex and on camera. Like for some reason, it made a difference. I did do a few hardcore layouts where it was hardcore. It was for a magazine only. There was no filming camera around. It was all just photographs. And I was like, this is kind of fun. It's just the photographer and the guy in me. No big deal. So what if it's hardcore? But suddenly, 
like I was going now into the next dimension of the adult world and I was going to be on film. And he's like, but it's just a loop. Um, you know, you don't need dialogue. Now, I think there was even like a little, you don't want to get sued. I'm thinking, oh my God, I've saved $10,000. I don't want it to go out the window on a lawsuit, you know? And I was like a little paranoid and oh my God, oh my God. So I thought, okay, just do it. Just do it. And I remember thinking I was like, I was sick to my stomach with nerves. I mean, I was absolutely petrified. Yet I could have left. There was no one there holding me. I, you know, but I chose to stay. So Ginger makes the transition with eyes wide open and in full control. Christy makes it dazed and blinking and in a panic. And yet both have the same first experience. A bad one. Christy's co-star is a triple threat. Middle-aged, overweight, and hairy. I was, I think at the time, just thinking... Where did I go wrong? How did I end up in a fucking porno film with this guy that I'm not even sure what his name is? He stole my fucking breakfast. This isn't what 18-year-olds strive to do if they even know about this. Like, who even really knew about porn in the 1980s? Regret comes fast. I remember I cried after just because I felt like an innocence had been taken from me. Like, there's almost no turning back now. Now it's on film. It's not just in a magazine. And for some reason at 18, and even now that made a difference to me. I think I may have gotten a little sold down the river, but it's okay because it all worked out. I love you, Jim South, but I didn't know that a loop was hardcore. Ginger doesn't catch a break with her co-star either. He's equally middle-aged and overweight and maybe even hairier. And I'm like, oh, and I'd never seen hair like that. And I didn't know that men were like bears. I just had no fucking idea. And it just was disgusting. I told Michael Carpenter, the director, I, I, I didn't tell, I asked, I said, I would prefer if we do most of this doggy so I don't have to look at him. Cause I'm thinking if I don't look at him, I can pull this off. This is going to be the ultimate test for me. I remember looking at the camera and Michael going, lick your lips. And I'm, I, I'm, Ginger makes it through the scene, but wishes she hadn't, is ready to walk off the set, out of the industry, never to return. And then she decides to stick around for her second scene. This time her co-star is Tom Byron. He's like this young guy with this huge cock and he's so sweet and we're just so attracted to each other. And we're, we're like, I'm sucking his dick before the camera's rolling. It's just wonderful. You know, it, it's the way that porn is supposed to be, where you love what you're doing, you go in and you do it. Tom understands that he preserved a national treasure. She wanted to get out of the business. She was kind of like, oh, this is kind of disgusting. But then she worked with me and she had a good time. I had a good time. And she was like, wow, if there are guys like this in the business, then I guess it's not so bad. Right. So I, I'm actually responsible for her choosing to remain in porn. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> America owes me a debt of gratitude. Same as Ginger. Christy wants out of porn as soon as she gets in. Tom turned Ginger around. Ginger will do likewise for Christy. It was a whole different energy. The set was more alive, and it was like Ginger Lynn, Peter North, probably Tom Byron. I just remember thinking, oh my God, they're all so young and cute. And I was talking to Ginger right away, who was adorable, this cute little, you know, perky blonde getting our makeup done and telling me where the douches were. And like, I didn't know what a douche was, you know, like that kind of thing. She knew that I was new at this and she was very, you know, very uh, sister, not, I got to legally say stepsisterly. 
She knew I'd never been with a girl on film or off film. She was very, um, you know, instruction. Oh, you know, well, when I'm done with makeup, then you're going to sit here and we could go over our lines together and I'm going to be really good with you. You know, that like very warm and very open. It was a whole, like it was a 180. It changed my whole viewpoint on the business. Christy's viewpoint may have changed, but the world's hasn't. Here she is on the moment her family found out what she'd been up to. They found out right away. Someone told them because I was born and raised here in this valley. So when the first person found out, it was like wildfire. Like it was such common, just everybody knew. And it was so tawdry to do. I mean, in the 80s, it was so kind of considered dirty and underground to do porn. Like, part of me was like, well, what did you expect me to do? You kicked me out at 17 and a half. Not that I have ill feelings and it all turned out, but I remember at the time thinking, ha ha, what did you think was going to happen? You know, like, I had to survive. The moment is every bit as devastating for Ginger. My parents found out that I was making adult films and my grandparents, and it was a really big deal. They had completely cut me off, and I was going through a really, really bad time. They said I wasn't part of the family anymore. I wasn't allowed to see my brothers or sister, that my grandfather was rolling over in the grave. And I called Susan. She came up to my place and spent a couple of hours with me and just helped me to decide what to do. We wrote, or I spent the next three days writing a letter to my family. Susan was there for me to help write this letter. And my father passed away about three years ago in a motorcycle accident. And I got to go through all of his things. And uh, one of the things I found was that letter. I have the original letter that I wrote to my father, letting them know who I really was and, and how they raised me, uh, helped me to be the, the woman that I was proud of being. And if it weren't for Sue's coming over and telling me, you need to get out of this funk, you need to get your shit together, you need to incorporate, you need to take this as a business or get out, you need to make a choice. Sue's was there for me. So Ashley, it seems like what happens is that these performers who are so young, are teenagers basically. I mean, Tracy's an even younger teenager, is an actual minor, but Christy and Ginger are only 18 and 19 when they start, are rejected by their real families for doing porn. And so the porn industry becomes their family. Absolutely. That's something that Paul Thomas Anderson really nailed in Boogie Nights. It's this familial bond that in some respects holds the industry together. Ginger gravitates to Suze Randall as a mother substitute. Christy does the same with Jim South as a father substitute. This in spite of her feeling that Jim has hoodwinked her a bit, got her on her first porn set under false pretenses. Here's Christy. He was my savior. And I remember one day, and it was around the holidays, and I didn't have family when I was 18. But I remember it was like a cold night, and it was late, like 7 o'clock, and it was dark outside. And it was just Jim South and I in his office. And I remember thinking, I love this man. And I tried to kiss him and he backed up and he said, oh no, I can't do that with you. And I thought, uh, why? Everyone else does. But I remember thinking, like looking back, I think you had such integrity. He could have had his way with me. He could have, you know, done anything to me and I would have let him because mm -hmm. that's how much I loved and appreciated him. I'm so struck by the words Christy uses to describe her first porn experience, the reaction of her family and friends. Unacceptable, dirty, underground. I think it's hard for someone living in 2020 to remember 
or realize just how taboo pornography was in 1984. Back then, you made a sex film and you were no longer part of civilized society. Right, and obviously Ginger and Christy felt the pain of exile. I'm not discounting that pain, but there's an upside to exile. If you're not in civilized society, you're in uncivilized society. Open territory, no borders, no fences, no laws, no rules, and no establishment. You play your cards right, you become the establishment. Think about it. Ginger and Christy and Tracy, early to mid-80s. These girls are the first video vixens in the history of the world. And video is blowing up porn in this major, major way, which means there's opportunity galore. And you get a sense of that opportunity when you hear Amber Lynn, the fourth big female porn star of the day, the fourth big video vixen, talk. Ginger has been one of the most famous women that has ever walked the face of the adult industry. Tracy Lords has been one of the most. I have been one of the most. Christy Cannon has been all in different ways in our own unique way. My thing was, and I've always been this kind of person, oh my God, there's this new business and we're going to make boatloads of cash. And I think that's my natural Virgo personality. I've always been that way. It was about, oh, you make a movie here, you go over here, you go on tour and you do the bookstores, you get paid to do each one of those appearances, you go to the adult clubs, you dance in the adult clubs, you make money there, you do all these things. Well, we didn't have all that. When we first started making movies, it was illegal. We created all of those things, literally. We wanted to be glamorous and we wanted box covers. They said, if you want to have box covers, you have to sit separate days. Your movie is made on this day and your box cover is shot on that day. And we were like, well, we're going to get paid. So then with every movie we made, there was a negotiation for what it cost to put us on the box. We would go on the road and we would we would say, I want a limo. I want makeup, professional makeup. I don't want to look like my own makeup out of my teenage, you know, lip gloss bag from high school. We were like the founding mothers of the entire industry. That is one rousing speech from Amber. Just hearing how she and Tracy and Ginger and Christy define the role of the modern porn star, how she looked, behaved, was treated, what she had coming and who was giving it to her. Even I feel pumped up. Okay, so we know how Ginger Lynn and Christy Canyon made the decision to go from magazines to movies. And we know from Tracy's memoir how she made the decision. She didn't. The decision was made for her. She was tricked, according to Underneath It All. Not kind of, sort of, maybe tricked, the way Christy was. Jim South perhaps using a linguistic sleight of hand, but flat out deceived. Tom Byron's response to Tracy's claim is a masterpiece of brevity. Bull fucking shit. He expands on it, slightly. Yeah, that's not, that's not, not what happened. <laughs> no, we, we actually, like, we're, we're going out dating and stuff before the scene. This is a bit of a he said, she said situation. So let's make sure we know exactly what he and she are saying. Tracy is saying that she, then just a nude model, was on a porn set, loaded on vodka, and that Tom Byron, to her some random porn dude, hit on her. They started to have sex. The sex was filmed without her knowing it. Bam, she was a porn star. 
And I quote, The stud of the moment, Tom Byron, walked in and started flirting with me. I was wasted by that point. And since then, I've often wondered if he'd been sent to seduce me or if he just got lucky. All I can say is I never intended to be filmed having sex in that kitchen. And I only realized I was being filmed when it was nearly over. And Tom is saying that she was the aggressor. She came on to me. And I went like, wow, this fucking girl is gorgeous. And blah, blah, blah. <laughs> All right, Ashley. So Tracy's got her first scene out of the way. She's crossed the border. She's now in the industry. Let's discuss her rise, her heat. My God, the terms in which she's talked about. It's as if she arrived from another planet straddling a thunderbolt. Yeah, not for Tracy the usual route to stardom, quietly making a name for herself in small parts, working her way up. No, Tracy is an immediate sensation, and everyone but everyone sits up and takes notice. Here's Anne Boleyn. When Tracy came in, there was such a fury around her arrival in this new girl, and she was just knocking down fences everywhere she turned. And Tracy was earning. She was the highest paid actress in the industry. Here's Tom Byron. She was making, you know, $1,000 a day, making, you know, twenty, thirty thousand, you know, sometimes more, you know, a month. And back in, you know, the early 80s, that went a long way. Which jives with Jim South's memory. She made about $300,000 in less than a year. And Ashley, Jim would know, wouldn't he? No question. What Tracy was earning was quite literally Jim's business. As her agent, he received a commission for just about every adult film and magazine appearance she made. This is a far cry from what Tracy told Larry King on his talk show in 2003. She said she made 40k total, meaning $40,000 in the entire two and a half to three year period she worked in the adult industry. And the number she gives in her memoir is even lower, 35k. Part of the reason Tracy was such a high earner is that she was prolific. Though she also told Larry King she only made 20 films in her entire porn career. This is simply and verifiably not true. Here's Paul Fishbein, founder of AVN, the trade magazine for the adult industry. She shot for everybody. I mean, she shot for everybody. And there were Tracy Lord's films coming out multiple every week, a bunch a month. Tracy's making a lot of noise in the industry. Tracy is also making a lot of noise in the industry. Her sound is as signature as her look. Here's Seuss Randall's husband, Humphrey Knipe, who directs Tracy in 1985's Love Bites. Tracy Lewis did for female vocalization what Deep Throat had done for fellatio. And the sounds aren't strictly an on-screen phenomenon. Here's Tom Byron. I mean, she made the same noises off-camera that she did on-camera, I guess. I mean, her on-camera persona was a little toned down off-camera, if that makes sense. She was aggressive on and off-camera, but, you know, it was a different vibe. Uh, Having sex on-camera, you know, was a performance. Having sex off-camera is just because you want to fuck, you know what I mean? That aggression Tom just referenced is yet another one of Tracy's signatures. If there's a female equivalent to balls, well, there is, ovaries. And Tracy has them, big swinging ones, as adult actor Tim Connolly recognizes. However, 
much of a bitch she was because she greatly enjoyed, you know, playing that role. She was pretty smart. She didn't miss a trick. You know, I watched her on that set of Ladies in Lace Party the first time I saw her. And and she just, um, she was just a pouty little cunt, you know, but she just smelled like sex, you know, and looked like sex. And she was very well aware of what, how she came across to people. And she played it. She played it to the nth degree, you know. If you walked up to her and you had lust in your eyes, she would not look at you right away and not answer you if you talked to her right away. Everybody had to wait. And uh, I kind of liked that about her. That took a lot of ovaries for her to do that. Here's cultural critic James Walcott, a kind of professional amateur when it comes to pornography. Even when she sort of was playing a character who was supposed to be demure, you never bought it for a moment. Everything about her was a kind of snarl, you know, I mean, not just her lips, you know, but but her whole body was kind of pouty and sulky. You felt like these guys really wanted to, like, dominate her, but no matter how much they tried, they couldn't do it. Uh, That she was stronger than all of them. Tim Connolly and James Walcott only watched Tracy in action. Billy Dee, one of the few black actors who appeared in mainstream adult movies at that time, was part of her action. I remember the first time uh, working with uh, Tracy. I'd been up uh, staying up all night uh, doing some stupid things back in those days. As soon as I came in to the shoot, I said, just uh, come and get me when you're ready, because I'm going to go to bed. Just as I was dozing off, here comes this young, voluptuous, to say the least, woman bouncing on my bed going, Hi, I'm Tracy Lord, and I'm very excited to work with you. And I say to her, yeah, okay, good. Uh, I look forward to working with you as well. And I just kind of slowly dozed off. And she goes, well, I want to I tell you what I like. And basically, she just said, I like my hair pulled. I like my butt spank. I like this pinch. So anyway, um, I'd heard about her, and I just kind of laughed it off and let it go. So we're doing this scene, and we're doggy. But I remember one specific thing that never leaves my mind. And you have to remember, I'm part black. All right? And uh, she's screaming, harder, harder, do this, slap my, do that. And then she just whipped her head around. She said, quit screwing me like a boy. And I said, like a boy. And so uh, anyway, I flipped her over and my gosh, I'll tell you what, we went hard at it from them. She just always brought that little aggressiveness out of you, that little you know, dominating spirit out of you. She just abandoned I love working with Tracy for that reason. Adult actor, writer, director Bill Margold remembers a sex scene between Tracy and Jamie Gillis. Now, Ashley, you're going to have to read this quote since Bill is no longer with us. Not a problem. Okay, this is Bill Margold speaking. Jamie's having sex with her in Wild Things. When they yell cut, she continues to say something to Jamie that is way beyond her precocious years into his ear, which even surprised Jamie, the most hedonistic person of all time. Jamie Gillis is also no longer with us, but we know what the something is that Tracy whispered in his ear because Jamie wrote a memoir called Naked in Public. It's unpublished, 
Only we have access to it because who did Jamie make his literary executor? That's right, our very own Ashley West. Ashley, will you read what Jamie wrote about Tracy? Sure. Jamie wrote, Later, when her true age was revealed, Tracy came to be seen as an abused innocent, preyed upon by the dirty old men of the porn industry. Who knows? There might be some truth to that. But I can tell you that my personal experience with the dear child included a brief moment when the camera was turned off. We were having a good time, did not disengage, and the dear little snot whispered in my ear, that's a good boy, fuck your mommy. It isn't just the men who notice Tracy's need to dominate. Here's Christy Canyon. I don't know how she knew. I don't know. She was in control. She knew what she wanted. There was no delay. There was no like, you know, oh, should I go this way? She like, she knew what she was doing for a 16 year old. She was amazing and fun. Like once we got into the sex, she was fun with it. She was sexy with it. She gave it her, she gave a hundred percent. She wasn't like, okay, I'm done. She, once the sex started, she was there till it was done. She was always kind of, you know, what I'd look back and call the dom with it. And I was fine. I was a total sub. She just owned those sets. I'll never forget 1985. She said to me, Christy, don't ever let them use you. Don't ever be a fuck doll. Don't ever be a fuck doll. Words to live by. And maybe a new feminist anthem. Next time on Once Upon a Time in the Valley... We had a conversation on the set of Talk Dirty to Me Part 3. We spent a lot of time on the set just kind of talking and stuff. And she had been like, one day I'm going to be working for Paramount and none of this is going to matter. Word to that effect. Didn't think anything about it. I was just like, whatever. These are all the things that I thought about once the story broke. Oh, that was a clue. Oh, that was a clue. Oh, that was a clue. This has been a presentation of C13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran and me, Lily Analik. Directed by Zach Levitt. Created and written by me. Produced by Ashley West. Edited and mastered by Chris Basil, Bill Schultz, Perry Crowell, and Ian Mott. Theme music and original score by Joel Goodman. Production engineering and coordination by Sean Cherry and Terrence Malangone. Field recording by Rich Berner. Artwork, marketing, and PR by Kurt Courtney, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. Once Upon a Time in the Valley is hosted by me and Ashley West. Thanks for listening. It's Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini-series is live now each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.